Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our singles especially. We're glad to have you here and hope you enjoy the activities. I really enjoy young people, and I had the opportunity to teach in Ambassador College and counsel hundreds and hundreds of students over a period of between 35 and 40 years. At my age and with my stroke, I won't participate in all of your activities this weekend, however. I think you know that because of my situation, but I'm certainly glad to help you in this way in the service and hope that I can give you some special information because I've been around for a while. I had 20 years of happy marriage with my first wife who died of cancer, and now my present wife and I have been married over 35 years, about 35 and a half years. So I've had to learn how to adapt, adapt to two different wives, to do different sets of children, and to different circumstances over a period of more than 55 years. And I hope that you will listen. I'll try to help you in a particular way that perhaps the younger men cannot do. I want them to fill in, and I know they will be giving you all kinds of technical points to watch for, and that's important. But I'm going to give you some big picture things you might get from these young kids who don't know anything. <laughs> I'm kidding. Some of the young kids I'm talking about are there in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But anyway, I'll try to give you some special information that you would get maybe in a different way from me. And I got some of these things from Mr. Armstrong, some of these things I've learned on my own. My wife and I just returned from Houston, as you know, and we were very glad to visit the churches there, Houston, and of course Beaumont came over and some other brethren came down from Austin and elsewhere. So we had a wonderful spirit, and the spirit of the brethren out there does seem to be very good indeed, and we enjoyed the trip very, very much. Some of the brethren told, said to tell Mr. Ames hello, because he and Mrs. Ames were there for a few years as pastoring, and some of them remember him. Mainly in a good way, by the way. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we're glad to have that because many of us have served in some of these churches in the past and certainly done a good job. We got to visit while we were there the Hogg Mansion or the Hogg Estate. This is really the truth. Some of you have heard this. There were two uh, really rich sisters there, and one of them was named I'm a Hogg. I, that literally was her name. I'm a hog. <laughs> How would you like that for a name? And there, the rumor was, the story, which is sort of apocryphal, that there was another sister named you're a hog, but I'm a hog and you're a hog. But that part was not true. There was not a you're a hog. I thought the latter part was true because I'd heard it, but being there, I heard that was just a, a story added on to the original. So that was a beautiful estate, and we took our family there. My daughter Elizabeth is there. And my younger daughter, Rebecca, and her husband came down from Austin, so we had a nice family gathering and enjoyed it very much. This is a special Sabbath, and I'm going to be talking about family, the importance of family. Family is a wonderful thing, and you young people, you singles, are certainly thinking about that. We're not trying to rush you into anything, and we certainly don't want to rush you into anything. You should not rush into marriage, because marriage is a lasting commitment. It should be a lasting commitment, a covenant between the two of you on your knees with God that you will remain faithful to one another and faithful to His way and that you will build a family. But nevertheless, it's important that you learn and you look forward to that and that you do not wait forever. Some people wait forever and near the end of their lives they probably wish they had been married some of you, I know, and I've heard from some of our other ministers and leaders even recently, some of you young people are waiting for Mr. Perfect. 
Mr. Perfect will never show up. <laughs> there was only one Mr. Perfect. That was Jesus Christ. He was already married to ancient Israel, so he did not get married for particular reasons like that. He was already married, technically, and also, of course, he was going to die at age 33 and a half and didn't want to leave a widow or children. Think about the worship that might have been involved if he did do that. They'd really be worshiping the sons of Christ if they had had sons. So he did not was guided by God not to marry because of that. There were other exceptions, of course, like the Apostle Paul. Yet most people should marry. Most of you young people should marry. Mr. Armstrong kiddingly said, not to pick on any of you at all, but he said when you're, you're not converted, you're without God's Spirit, you're not all there. And when you're single, you're just a single young man, you're not all there. <laughs> and the single young men need a wife. And the young women need a husband. And God made it that way. And yet in our society, because of the confused situation we're in and the constant activities of Satan the devil and his attitudes being pumped out, pumped out, pumped out, now he's even trying to get men interested in marrying other men. And normally they had to restrain the young men from, you know, getting too fresh, as we say, with the women and wanting to hug and kiss them too much. Now you almost have to feed them extra wheat germ or light a fire under them in some way to get them even interested in that. Some of them lack perhaps hormones. Our terrible dietary problem has hurt the male testosterone. There have been many articles on that. Also, the young women today are taught to be more independent. They're taught to be more pushy. Many young women today are getting more education than the men. They'll make more than the men, and that frightens the men, and it causes them to draw back, and it's creating a terrible situation in society. Many articles have come about that in the major newspapers, in the Wall Street Journal, in magazines, about how many, actually hundreds of thousands of women who ought to be married are not married today. They're growing old alone, and these men are growing old alone because of that very thing. It's not a good thing. That's going to change in tomorrow's world. I'll guarantee you that. But within the church, we should try to change it to the degree that we can. And I want to give you some big picture items on that. Of course, brethren, I have preached on this before. And you older brethren, remember, you young people, as you think about marriage, try to be careful in finding someone of similar background, similar racial similar cultural, similar ed educational, your similar interests, and so on, and certainly someone that's very compatible to you in a romantic way. I remember one time when I was a young minister, and I think I was trying to impress Mr. Armstrong. I wasn't consciously doing that, but I loved him and admired him as my father in the Lord and my mentor, and we were talking about marriage and getting ready for marriage. And I said, well, Mr. Armstrong, you know, Every young man thinking about a young woman, he ought to think about her educational background, her cultural background, her family, what it was like, her health. And I listed about 10 or 12 different things. And Mr. Armstrong kind of smiled knowingly. He said, yes, Rob, that, that's all very good. He says, you're leaving out one of the most important things of all. Of course, I was trying to sound very spiritual. I left out the one thing he left. You're left out chemistry. <laughs> You've got to have that special romantic feeling. For the other person and that's not the main thing but that's a very important ingredient and you don't want to leave that out sometimes that's the only thing a young man will think about how pretty is she how how quickly do i want to take her in my arms and kiss her yet as mr armstrong said you're going to spend about one-third 
of your life in, in bed with this other person. If you sleep eight hours a day, you know what I mean? That's what it amounts to. So the touch of her skin, the smell of her hair, her appearance, the way she is, everything about her ought to be very beautiful to you and very special. Nothing wrong with that. That's not nasty. That's the way God intended it. God made it that way. He made women so they would be beautiful to us. And it's absolutely stupid and a form of insanity for these men to come along today and say men should marry other men. I, I can't imagine such a thing. And yet, of course, men are being taught that, and that's supposed to be normal. Where it's not normal, it's perverted and against everything Almighty God intended. And we'll go into a little bit of that as we go along. So it is ideal to be married. God himself is building a family. We've talked about that over and over. God calls us his children, and he's impregnating us, as Mr. Armstrong put it, literally putting within us his very nature. Just as my four children, my six children now, have a certain amount of my nature within them, so God puts his nature within us. And more and more of his nature comes within us to the degree that we feed on Christ, to the degree that we walk with God. He's building a family, beings that will be like he is, think like he is, that he can walk with, talk with, fellowship with, associate with, and yes, enjoy. God himself wants love. God himself wants companionship. No doubt he's put that within us. And he wants our companionship. He wants our love. He wants us to be like he is in all those ways, to be part, part of his family. Turn back to Ephesians, the third chapter, brethren, if you would. Turn back to Ephesians, and I'm going to be reading here in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. And turn there with me. Our Father in heaven said in Ephesians 3, through the apostle Paul, beginning in verse 13, he tells the uh, brethren at Ephesus, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. Paul was going through a lot of trials. He was beaten up. He said, remember my chain. He was shackled with a chain in a prison in Rome, which is for your glory. For this reason I bow my knees to who? Verse 14, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Yes, God is building a family the whole family in heaven and earth is called the family of God. The kingdom, which will become the family, is called the kingdom of God. The church, which is the embryo of the kingdom of God, is called and named 12 times the church of God. It's all named after God. And that is God's purpose. He is building a family, and we're to think of it in that way. One of the, It also goes on here about in verse 19... He says he wants us to comprehend with all saints what the width and length and depth and height and to know, verse 19, the love of Christ which passes knowledge. We are to have Christ's love and we are to have God's love. Back in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, it says God is love. In verse 16, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, it repeats it. God is love. And as Mr. Armstrong explained, and certainly the Bible clearly indicates, love is outflowing concern. In the human sense, it can involve affection. 
In a marriage sense, it means a special affection and intimacy and romantic feeling for your mate as well. If it's done in love, all that's wonderful and ought to be there, must be there. But love is outflowing concern, outflowing concern. And marriage, brethren, and marriage, you young people, is probably the best place on earth to learn love and to learn how to express love. I had to learn to express love in a certain way to my first wife. I was young. I had to learn everything from scratch, so to speak, by experience. And then I came along with another beautiful woman who helped me, came down when I was so lonesome and has helped me and served me and given to me so much for over 35 years and learned to love her. I've had to learn to love and appreciate the differences of the strengths of two different types of children, in a sense, that have come from the two different families and to learn how to appreciate what God has given them and to learn in that sense how all kinds of people out there in the whole world are different and we're supposed to love them all. Love is outflowing concern. None of us do that perfectly, but all of us had better learn how to do it more and more. And you can learn that. You can learn that in a family probably better than anywhere else. You learn how to give. You learn how to share. You also learn how to forgive. You've got to forgive. I know brothers and sisters have to forgive each other. And they have to learn to give to each other and to get along. You learn that in a family setting. And that's a wonderful, wonderful place to learn it. And God wants all of you to have a family. Family is not just about sex. Some young guys get their mind on that and read Playboy or Penthouse or some of these even worse magazines today. I don't know the names of all of them. I don't read them anyway, of course. But their mind is just on that part of it. It's certainly wonderful to have a beautiful young woman that you think is gorgeous. And when my wife and I first met, I thought I'd met the most gorgeous person in the world. And she still is. Now, some of you young guys can't figure that out because God has not opened your mind yet. <laughs> but to me, since we've lived together and shared so many things together, and she's helped me, and I hope I've helped her through trial after trial, over and over again, we have learned to appreciate each other, to love each other, to take care of each other. We're growing old together, and we're going to take care of each other until death does us part, until death does us part. And each of us has that commitment, and that commitment and that outflowing concern is love. And that love deepens even beyond the early romantic feelings that I may have had for her when she was so beautiful and perky and enthusiastic and came down to make my life full again for Bakersfield when I was so lonely after the death of my first wife. And I will always appreciate that, always appreciate that. How lonely and mixed up and unbalanced I would have been for the last 35 and a half years if Cheryl had not done that. And she's been able to put up with me, which is quite an achievement. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, energetic in preaching, but I'm also pretty, pretty pushy sometimes. And she's had to adjust to that. And I've had to adjust to her, adjusting to each other, giving, helping, serving, forgiving each other over and over and over hundreds of times and still trying to be, appreciate one another. That is love. And that's what God wants all of us to learn. <clears throat> and I hope that we can. Love is outflowing concern, and certainly marriage, children, in-laws, 
all the other relatives. You have to learn to love a great variety of people if you build a big family, which God wants us to do. Turn back to Psalm 127. Here's a song that we often sing in the church. A lot of you know where I'm turning, of course, and what's there. But it's a very, very important thing because it's in the Word of God. Psalm 127, here is the mind of God. Again, I want to remind you as I preach, brethren, and you young people, this is not all my opinion when I read these things out of the Bible. The Bible is a revelation of the mind of God. And even these Old Testament statutes and examples are put there for our learning, for our admonition, as the New Testament tells us. They're part of the revelation of the way God thinks. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In vain you rise up early, stay up late to the bread of sorrow, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children. God gives us children in marriage in most cases. Children are a heritage from the Lord. And I might say that grandchildren are a wonderful heritage. I just met two of my grandchildren so I've been extremely blessed to have that opportunity to learn in various ways because I have six children, ten grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. So I've had a total of 20 people who have proceeded from me and have part of my very nature in them. Children are a heritage from the ever-living one. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. And if you have a big family, you can be very, very happy if you learn how to have that family. And you don't even have to be fully converted. I always remember the McNair family, Mr. Rod McNair's grandparents being on their family farm and seeing the children, still four or five of them were at home and sitting around the table and laughing and talking and carrying on together. They weren't rich. They had an old a schoolhouse converted into a home. And Mr. McNair put curtains around the tub and they had one wash tub where they had their baths. And the boys and girls kidded around, but I don't think they were spying on each other. But you know what I mean? They had to adjust to all that. They had a path in the Sears Roebuck catalog by the outhouse. They had no indoor plumbing. No indoor plumbing. No air conditioning in Arkansas. But mostly they were very happy. And all the McNair children illustrated that as I got to know them because I got to know Archie McNair, the older, Vivian McNair, Marion then came to college, his younger brother Bert, or Carl, Rod, I mean Raymond McNair at the same time, and then later Bert McNair showed up. Then Peggy was the next in line, and then Margie, my wife, was next, and then youngest of all was Mr. Carl McNair, Rod's father. But in that family home, they sat around this big table and Mrs. Benaire would put on a whole bunch of different vegetables they, wrote, they raised in their own garden. They all worked together. They worked in the field together. They worked hard. And Mr. McNair would send Tressie, his wife, in in the middle of the afternoon. He'd say, Tressie, you go in. So she didn't have to keep working. And you rest a while because she was going to have to fix the evening meal. So he sent her in so she could get the first bath <laughs> and get herself refreshed and fix dinner for the rest of them. But the rest of them stayed right out there. Even down to three, four, five years old, they learned to work and work and accomplish together. And they learned to be together, stay together, play together. 
And it was a good experience for them. I know at the family table, he would often grab her and kiss her right in front of the kids, and they'd all laugh, kind of embarrassed. But they enjoyed it, seeing dad and mother. She, oh, he, she said, oh, Joy, she, uh, Joe, she called him, shame on you. But she enjoyed it. She'd smile, and he'd kiss her and hug her every evening in front of the kids, probably several times, just a very affectionate feeling. And they were all kidding each other and enjoying themselves. What did they have? A lot of you young people are afraid to get married because you don't have 50,000 saved. You haven't got your Cadillac convertible yet. You don't have a big savings account. Well, it's ideal to have those things, but most of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents didn't have that. A lot of them just went in it together. They worked and worked till they built a family. And Mr. and Mrs. McNair did that, and they had all the kids working and producing together, and they survived together, and it drew them together. There is this feeling in this psalm just like that. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb. So are the children of a man's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. In other words, they're going to defend their parents, their family, as the boys get big and strong. They're a source of strength. Sometimes the kings of ancient Israel and other nations had many wives. Why? They would have more warriors. They'd have their own family army. King David had about 15 or 20 sons. He built his own army plus the regular army he had. But you looked on your family as a source of strength. Again, a lot, a lot of you need to learn to think that way, not to have huge families necessarily, but to be willing to go through trials and tests, to suffer at first. Don't, you don't have to wait until you're rich to get married. You need to start off willing to sacrifice. Build your wealth together. Build your life together live in a little tiny house together and love each other and get along. My parents, when I was born, and for the first 13 years of my life, the first 13 and a half years, we had a little tiny brick house about 11 or 1,200 square feet. If you know what that is, about one-third the size of my present home, about one-third the size. No air conditioning. Luckily, we did have a basement. And so we could go down there in the hottest days of the summer and play Chinese checkers or ping pong or something. But it was a tiny little house, but we were happy. And you went right through the living room and straight back was the bathroom. And on the left side was my parents' bedroom. And you went back on the right side, became Patty and Catherine's bedroom. That's where Mrs. Ames grew up with her sister. And they moved me out once the girls got older, of course. So I had to get out. And they put me up on the couch in the living room. That's where I slept for the 13 years of my life. Did it hurt me? No, it did not hurt me. Hundreds of millions of people around the world are living far worse than I lived, and many people in these farm homes and other homes didn't really have a nice bed. My couch was comfortable, but we had to make it in the morning, and I had to put my clothes to one side on a chair, and that was fine. It never occurred to me that I was suffering because I was not suffering. I had a wonderful family. I had plenty to eat. I never lacked for food. And I had plenty of activities with my dad, my mother. On Sundays, we would go over to grandmother's house and she'd put on a great big family dinner after church. And so there'd be my family, my father and mother, Patty and Catherine and me, the five of us. Grandmother was six. And normally Uncle Paul and Aunt Ethel was there. That was eight. And on occasions even more, eight of us gathered around the family table. And we had a family. And sometimes on Christmas and Thanksgiving, we'd have even... Uncle Claude and Aunt Kay come down, and even more people, and their son C.E., so we'd end up having a total of 11 or 12 people 
depending if some guest or one of my friends was there on occasion. But we had family, and we did things together, and that was a wonderful thing. It says here in verse or, or chapter 128, Blessed is everyone who fears the eternal, who walks in his ways. You're blessed with family if you learn to walk in God's ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. Your wife will give you children if you're a happy family and if you have good health. Our society is getting less and less healthy. Some can have children, but overall, vast majority of people can. In the very heart of your house, your children are like olive plants all around your table. And I always remember that very happy occasion in our home or in the McNair family and others I've been to like that. All around your table, blessed or behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. A man shall be blessed if he can have that kind of laughing, frolicking, joyous children, family, and laughter in the house and children and little boys chasing their little sisters around or vice versa. My older daughter, Elizabeth, was a few years older than Mike and, and Jim. As a lot of you know, Jim, he's off on a trip to and, and was preaching up in New England and visiting some fee sites there now. But my daughter, Elizabeth, got to a certain point when she was about 11 and the boys were not grown yet, had not sprouted up, and she literally could whip them both. She could take them and throw them on the ground. <laughs> I was amused at that. About two years later, of course, it all changed. She never did that again. But at any rate, uh, we had family, and they were all chasing each other around the house. And that was enjoyable as you have that laughing, laughter and that activity in the house. A lot better than being all alone. After I graduated from college, I went up to Portland, Oregon, my first pastor, and I was all alone up there. I had gotten used to living in the dorm with all the other fellows and girls, and suddenly I was literally all alone. There wasn't one single young woman in the Portland church or in the Seattle church, which I raised up during that time. Not one anywhere near my age. And no man near my age either, or one or two somewhat smaller, uh, somewhat younger, that I would take with me the fund. Some of you older brethren remember Kimmer Fund and Avon Fund, and their daughter Patty Fund is married to Mr. Gary Stein. But at any rate, I knew them when they were a junior high and high to take them with me to drive up to Seattle in the rain and the fog so I'd have someone with me, but no one I could date. And it suddenly hit me, maybe I should get married. <laughs> a great revelation came over my mind. Maybe I should get married. And it was very good for me because I had thought about it before, but I was so busy in college and all the fellows and girls and activities, I never experienced lonesomeness in that sense. Suddenly I did. And I began to think more deeply about marriage. And, of course, I was getting old enough and had a little bit of savings and had a job at least, so I finally could get married. So think family. Don't just think romance. Romance is wonderful. Have romance in your courting. Enjoy each other. Spend time with each other. Get to know the other person thoroughly. Not sexually, but just a loving, friendly, loving relationship and laugh together, play together, do different types of things together, get to know each other's friends and family to the degree that you can, and so on. But learn to enjoy it. But think about family. This person can help you build a family and build this unit. You cannot do that by yourself, only with the family. And that's what God wants, and that's why God made us male and female. If anyone's guilty for sex, God is the biggest one of all guilty. He made us male and female. 
He wants us to love each other. He wants us to be together in marriage and have children. Turn now to uh, Genesis chapter 1, if you would, and hear a little scripture to back up what I just said. It's something, again, we all know, but it's good to review it. As Mr. Armstrong lets us go right back to the beginning. Genesis 1, it shows how God, in verse 24, said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle, creeping thing, beast of the earth, each according to its kind. Each creature had a kind, the cow kind, the horse kind, the dog kind, and so forth. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, and so on. Then God said, verse 26, Let us, not me, because God already was a family. God the Father, we call Him today, and God the Son, but was called the spokesman, the Word, the Logos, the one who did the speaking, the two of them. Let us make man in our image. So he was starting to enlarge the family according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over everything. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He wanted us to be male and female. Then God blessed them and said to them, a lot of people got ideas from the old Catholic monks during the Dark Ages where they were trying to put down marriage and like sex was evil. Well, they said God is the most guilty one of all. What was the very first command that God gave human beings? Stay away from girls that are dangerous? No. God told them. Of course, they were married. He said, first of all, the very first command you find in the whole Bible, be fruitful. Love each other and have lots of kids. <laughs> I like to paraphrase it in modern language. Love each other and have lots of kids. Be fruitful and multiply. Our guru in the church used to be Dr. Herman Hay. He was always studying and analyzing. And he said, you don't multiply if you have just two children. You multiply if you have four children. So that you're not a sinner if you don't have four. But, you know, I mean, that was his way of putting it. Certainly in the early days, we did do that a lot more. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every other creature as he describes. God created man in his image mentally and to a certain extent spiritually to think like God thinks, to have creative imagination and to think like God so that he could have dominion over all these other creatures, have that kind of mind, the spirit in man. He could be the leader. He could be the governor of the whole earth. So he was created to be a leader, to have dominion. So he told mankind at the beginning to do that and told men and women that they should be fruitful and multiply. Then it says here uh, in chapter 2, verse 18, he created man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And it says in verse 18 of chapter 2, the eternal God said it is not good that man should be alone. As I said, Mr. Armstrong said a number of times, a young man is not all there <laughs> if he's all alone. He often needs a young woman to balance him, to soften him, to help him, to make his life full. So it wasn't good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, like he is, to share his thoughts, his plans, his hopes, his dreams, his aspirations, his sorrows, his joys, his trials. So out of the ground, God made all these creatures, brought them to Adam, and he named them. 
but there was not found a helper comparable to Adam. And so God falls a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And in verse 22, then the rib, which the ever-living God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So actually, Eve was created right out of Adam. Now, the world takes this man as a fairy tale. I know that. They think it's just a, you know, kind of a, 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 an analogy or something. But that's not so. Everything indicates in the Bible God meant this. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's totally like me, except as the French would say, viva la différence. You know, women have a more beautiful, soft, round curves that make them beautiful to a man. And that's beautiful. That's right. That's what God wants. So man would want to marry a woman, would want to take a young woman in his arms, would want to have children. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha in the Hebrew, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. So the man was Ish in the Hebrew, and the word Isha means from Ish. So the word for man is Ish. And the very name for a woman from the beginning was from Ish. She was made from him and ought to be joined to him eventually. That's the way God intended. Therefore, because of that fact, the fact God made us that way, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's what God said. So that was what God intended from the beginning, that man and woman be totally one in marriage, and build a family. And as I say, as we think about marriage, we ought to think about being fruitful, multiplying, having children, having grandchildren, and having even great-grandchildren. You have a wonderful feeling when you're surrounded by a a number of your relatives in that way, a very special feeling you can't get any other way. So it's a very, very important thing. Back in uh, Genesis 3, if you turn there for a moment... In Genesis 3, he told uh, the woman, Genesis 3, verse 16, he punished Adam for following his wife and punished the serpent. And finally to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. From the beginning, God intended that the man be the leader. But our modern society has got it all mixed up, and they're encouraging the women to be independent, and encourage them to say, no man's going to tell me what to do. And that very thing and that very attitude, of course, drives a lot of men away. So if a woman wants to be alone all her life, I guess she can do that. But that's not God's intent or God's purpose. This is the mind of God. He tells a woman it's best if her husband is the leader, and he punished the man for following his wife, A woman has more love in many ways, kindness, mercy, responsiveness, so she can respond and be kind and merciful and forgiving and gentle to little children and to others and help the society in that way and many other artistic ways where she excels. But the man could think a little bit harder, a little straight through objectively, and it's better that he makes the final decisions. And that's what God shows all the way through the Bible, and the family will be better if both the man and the woman understand that and are committed to that. And, of course, most women want that. That's what they actually want. But many are taught the other way, and it's harder for them. 
So we do need to think about what is the mind of God. So again, as you're thinking about these things, brethren, and you young women, and you young men, are you young women waiting for the perfect man to come along? Well, I've been counseling young men, as I said, for about 60, 61 years now in my ministry all over the world. I've counseled a number in Australia and up in Canada, certainly dozens in Britain and hundreds all across the United States in Ambassador College. I have news for you, girls. There ain't no such animal. There isn't any perfect man. He's not there. So you're not going to find the perfect husband. He does not exist. And you men, you know that or should know that there's no perfect girl. We're all imperfect. So you've got to look at the whole picture and realize I want a life companion. I want a mate. I want someone that I can share my life with. Yes, I want someone that is love and beautiful, lovely and beautiful to me that I can go to bed with and lie together all night, perhaps talking, waking up, encouraging each other when you're sorrowing, share your hopes and dreams with. And when you're at the end of your life, you know you're going to be buried right here and she's going to be buried right there. And that's beautiful. That's right. That's what God wants. We live together. We die together. We share our hopes and dreams. When we get old, we take care of each other. I remember Mr. Clint Zimmerman, Dr. Zimmerman, had been a very successful chiropractor. And the older brethren remember him. I know Mrs. Aparty, and I see her out there. She remembers him and so many of the other older brethren, Mrs. Uh, Murray now and others. Dr. Z, we called him. As he got old, he kept his strength. And he died just a year or two ago. He lived up into his mid-90s. But his wife died earlier. She, I forgot what it was wrong with her, but he had to take care of her. She was in a wheelchair. He had to dress her, bathe her, help her up, help her down, take care of her in every way. And he got up in Pasadena in the headquarters church one time in the house of God and preached a very touching sermon that brought tears to the eyes of many of us. He said, this beautiful woman took care of me for years and years and years and gave me two or three fine children. She put up with me. She helped me. She, she served me when I was sick and everything else. And she gave and gave and gave and gave. And he said, I took and took and took and took. I said, now that she's in a fix, I have the opportunity to take care of her, which he did. My wife and I stayed with him back in Colorado Springs when he was ministering there. I know when my wife first got her breast cancer, we were going to the hospital. And one weekend, I slept by her bed in the hospital where she just had her operation and caught and helped encourage her and then drove her home. And the very next week, one week later exactly, she took care of me in the other hospital when I had my stroke. And she's been taking care of me in a certain amount ever since. I had to take care of her a little bit during her recent terrible bout, but I wasn't able to help her too much except general encouragement because I still was weak and we had some of you ladies send us food, which we're thankful for. And thank, again, those of all you helped. And Monica and Debbie and Madeline both came over and others and helped and helped and helped. So we held the house together. And now she's strong again, but it still can come back on her. And I pray for her every day. Say, God, keep my companion here. I need her. I hope we'll be able to live right up to the end together. But we don't know that. 
we're going and we are committed to taking care of each other until the end. Marriage is about outflowing concern. Marriage is about lasting commitment. Commitment. You commit yourself to this other human being. Yes, of the opposite sex. And it's a wonderful thing because only my wife can help me in so many ways like that. Another man wouldn't have the natural kindness and patience and tenderness that she has. No way. And another woman would not be able to help Cheryl and support her and take care of her and perhaps guide her in certain ways the way I do. We help each other in a way no one else can, no one else would, and we both know that, and we're thankful for that. As you think about it, young people, think about that. Think about family. Do you want to die completely alone? You might lie in your home there for some time or your apartment for two or three days before anyone realized you were dead? Well, that wouldn't be a, a sin. I'm just saying think about it. It's good to break out of the mold, some of you, <laughs> and, and, and get on the ball. And maybe you want to get married and you pray to God would give you the right one and not the perfect one. If you keep waiting for the perfect one, the perfect one may never come along. So we need to think about family and what that means. Back in Numbers chapter 36, turn with me to Numbers 36. Here is more of the mind of God. And it shows how it's not all Hollywood romance. You see this beautiful woman through the smoke across the crowded room, as the old song goes, and she's so pretty. It's all Hollywood. It's all Hollywood. You don't see some beautiful Hollywood star across the Hollywood, across the room every time when you get married. You see another human being. And every human being has warts. You know what I mean? Some kind of faults. Something that's not perfect about them. Every human being has that. So you see that. But God intends us to get married. He wants us to marry someone somewhat similar. And God shows that throughout the Bible. Remember how... Abraham, the father of the faithful, was an example. He sent his servant off to find a wife for his son of his own people. You see, he wanted them to have that basic similarity. That's ideal, to marry a, a wife or someone of your own people of the same race and preferably even of the same tribe of Israel or have at least a basic similarity to the degree that you can. But here in chapter 36 of Numbers, it's more the mind of God he speaks about the families of the children of Gilead, Gilead the son of Manasseh, uh, so on, and they came near uh, to speak to Moses, and they said that God had allowed Zelophehad to die, and here the Lord had commanded us to give the inheritance to our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. So his daughters were still alive, and they could get their inheritance. Now, if they're married to any of the sons of the other tribes, then the inheritance will be taken from them. And so then Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord. Moses was led by God, it shows in this, in the Bible, saying what the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. Verse 6, this is what the ever-living one commands concerning the daughters of the Lapahed. Let them marry whom they think best, but they marry only within the family of their father's tribe. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to marry a fellow Manassite or Ephraimite. I'm just saying this is what they did back there as a statute. And these statutes reveal the mind of God. So it is good if you can marry someone, obviously, most of all in the church, someone with a similar background, and you'll find more children will turn out more like the two of you 
and your family will generally be happier that way. And so it was the inheritance of the children shall not change hands. That was the immediate thing. But many of the other examples of the Bible show that also. That was the ideal thing. I know over in uh, England when I was there, the great black boxer, Muhammad Ali, I say black because some of you young people don't maybe even know him. He was a wonderful athlete, and I understand a very fine person overall. Muhammad Ali, world heavyweight champion, some sassy BBC woman presenter got on there and she said, well, Mr. Ali, a lot of the big black athletes get themselves a white trophy wife. Are you going to get yourself a white wife? And he answered immediately, no. He said, I want my sons to look like me. Does that make sense? He was not embarrassed as to who he was. I want my sons to look like me. And God tells us that in effect in the Bible, not that it's a sin to marry someone of a certain different background, but the ideal is that, and they were even told by God to keep the inheritance within the family, because again, when you're building a marriage, you're building a family, you're building an inheritance, you're building an extended family. How is all this going to work out as it affects your father, your mother, your aunts and uncles, and so on? Are they going to fit into that extended family? You need to think of all those things. So don't think it's just Hollywood romance. It involves a lot of other things. The Bible tells us that. Deuteronomy 25, and here we find another example of this same thing. He says here, this is God's instruction in the statutes of God. Deuteronomy 25, verse 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies, and apparently is not married, the one that's still living, and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go in to her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And then if he wouldn't do that, he didn't have to, but his wife could spit in his shoe and embarrass him. It was a normally should be done. Well, you see, that doesn't sound very romantic. Again, you young people, all you've heard is Hollywood. See who's pretty. See who which girls want to kiss or hug or something. But back then, marriage was about building a family. This is the mind of God. Do young people realize, some of you do if you've studied history, who are your ancestors, many of you? Who were some of my ancestors? Probably one of my ancestors were just like this situation here because I'm about 116th or 132nd Cherokee Indian. I'm partly Cherokee. That's where this wild nature... <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not ashamed of that at all. That's what happened. Whole boatloads, whole shiploads of women were sent over from Britain and Holland and elsewhere. The men would come over here and some of them would marry Indian squaws. They were lonesome. They were frustrated. They had normal hormones. They needed a mate. They wanted a mate, a woman, to take in their arms and have a mate and have children, have a family. So they sent whole shiploads of women who were hungry, who were doing without often, and who wanted a mate and couldn't get one probably over in Britain when they're having hard times, or Ireland, or Holland. And whole shiploads of them became. And you read the stories. They'd land, and then they'd have a series of socials the local community would put on and some of them would just meet at a dance or party and be engaged within a matter of days. 
said, well, a lot of you will think, well, we're supposed to wait for six months to take all these tests and have 500 counselings and then wait six more months and see if the world came to an end. Well, that's ideal in some ways sometimes, but I didn't do that. And I hope our younger ministers will forgive me. They'll have to. I've lived through marriage more than most of you have and had to adapt, and I've read these things. This is what our ancestors did. Why were they had these happy marriages, most of them? Because the whole society had more of the fear of God than they do today. They had a sense of commitment back there, and young people kind of flowed in and out of marriage. So it's good to get counseling, and God says in multitude of counsel there is wisdom. And so I encourage you young people to get wisdom, to get counsel. And if there are these marriage preparatory tests that can help you, in some cases they are. Some of them may have some nutty questions that wouldn't apply. But you have to use your judgment. But you've got to think about the fact, I want a, a mate, and that mate is not going to be perfect, and he may not mate every, you know, may not cross every T and dot every I in the test or whatever there is that's involved, but he's normal. He can take care of me. He's a decent young man in God's church. And we can build a family together. A family together. And you need that commitment. So that's the big picture. And don't let anyone change. That is the big picture. I'm telling you that as the presiding evangelist of the church. And I hope this does get across the world too. It's all right to get more tests and more counselings and waitings and so on. But sometimes you just have to decide you're going to get married and you may not get all of that. We have scattered brethren out in some little podunk place in smaller states that don't even have a minister to give them these tests. They don't even have a minister to counsel them in many cases. Are they going to never get married? No, they should get married. But they should try to get a little bit of counseling. Usually the parents were involved in the earlier age. And sadly, that's hard to find now because most parents are not involved. But go to your father or mother. Ask them for advice if they're close enough. Go to your minister or some elder that you know and respect that's a wise person. Get counsel. Try to get the facts. Think about the big picture, though, and act on the truth and ask God to guide you in that, to choose the right mate. And again, I say, don't wait until the end of the world. Don't wait until the end of the world. You'll end up old. You'll end up maybe in a hospital and no one will come visit you. Mr. Ain't, Mr. Uh, Mr. League may be too old to come if you keep waiting, and I do too. I'm trying to kid a little bit, but you know what I mean. You don't have to wait forever. You could get married if you want to, and don't wait forever, because some of you wait tend to wait around, and you're afraid, to, you're afraid of marriage. I don't know what you're afraid of, but you're afraid of marriage, and afraid perhaps to make that commitment. So you need to have this overall understanding of, of the meaning of marriage. The meaning of marriage involves not just romance and sex and a marriage family. And often, brethren, you will have a happier marriage if you marry when you have to work together to save enough money to get a home. Start in a little rented apartment at first. Maybe a furnished apartment. Some young people don't even have a bed. Some young people don't have anything when they start out. They could get a furnished apartment, a small one-room apartment, start small and build. If you wait till you can have everything at once, which all kinds of young people seem to think they have to have today, you might wait forever. You don't need everything at once. You've heard me say this before, and I mean it, though. One of the happiest couples that I ever saw, and I honestly tell you this, I could see the love 
and the warmth and the happiness and the joy coming out of both of their eyes was a young Cajun couple down near Houma, Louisiana. Look it up, H-O-U-M-A. They were back in the swamps. Back in the swamps. Did they have everything? No, they had practically nothing. They didn't even have children yet, but they'd been married a few years, long enough to be unhappy. I remember thinking of that. Where did they live? They had a kind of a corrugated steel or, or, or something over their head. Their floor was dirt, but the young one had it, the man had it packed hard, I guess, and she kept it swept. It was hard dirt, absolutely clean, and they had no air conditioning, no television. They had one car. He drove down the road to work as a logger, and they were very, very happy. They had no fancy things at all, but they were happy. They loved each other. You don't have to be of all this junk in order to be happy. You just do not. And too many people today think they've got to have two cars. No, you don't. They think you've got to have two televisions. No, you don't. You don't have to have all that stuff to be happy. Most of the human beings of the seven billion people on this earth don't have and will never have all those things. And some of them are much, much happier than the Americans over here who have all these gadgets to make themselves happy, but they are not happy, and this nation has one of the highest divorce rates on the earth. Those gadgets do not make you happy. The love, the kindness, the sitting out under the porch or out in the back backyard looking up at the stars together and holding hands. I remember Mr. and Mrs. McNair used to sit on the front porch and just sort of sit there quietly and talk a little bit or their neighbor, uh, kind of forget his name, he'd come over, and then the, he and Mr. McNair would sit, he'd say, well, Joel, how's the crops? And you'd kind of hear the crickets chirping and the frogs from the little river down there, and they'd sit, and then he'd kind of chew his straw and his, well, the crops ain't too good this year. And then they'd sock a little bit more and then have a little bit, they were both looking up at the stars in the sky, just kind of meditating the friendship they had with each other and with their wives. They had no television, no fancy stuff, but they were happy. You learn to love, to give, to share, and you can be happy if you learn to build it in that way. Back in Matthew 19 now, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, the Pharisees came and tested him. Verse 3, Matthew 19, verse 3, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Can you get married for just any reason? And he said, Have you not read that he who made them male, at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus was simply quoting what we just read a while ago in Genesis. This is what God said. What's wrong with same-sex marriage? Well, this verse right here. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. God made them male and female, and a man would leave his father and mother, and then the two shall become one flesh. Who? Male and female. Not male with another male or female with another female, but the male and the female become one flesh in marriage. That's God's way. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put us under. And they said to Christ, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And Jesus gently corrected them. He, they said, Why did Moses command? 
But Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, command, no, he permitted you because you were hard-hearted. You did not have God's Spirit back there. He permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Adam was not permitted to divorce Eve. And if he had done, he had no one else to be with anyway. <laughs> so God intended a man and woman to stay with each other. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality or porneia, and the word porneia includes not only premarital sex, it includes promiscuous sex in general, including, including homosexuality. It's used in all those ways. Porneia, gross immorality, and marries another. And of course, there's one other reason we know that the Bible indicates if the unconverted mate, back in chapter 1 Corinthians 7, 19, if the unconverted mate leaves you, then you can, and leaves the church, of course, then you could remarry on those grounds. So if anyone divorces for any other reason, marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. What were they saying? They were saying, man, if there's no way you can get loose, <laughs> it's better not to marry. We'll just stay the way we are. Well, that's not ideal at all to be all alone the rest of your life. But Jesus said, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those whom whom it is given. Certainly there are some, brethren, who like Paul could have the gift of chastity or like Christ or have a special reason not to marry. And we respect that. But for most of you, that's not the case. The overwhelming majority of our young people, and by young people, I mean all of you under 50, okay? All of you under 50 are young enough to be my children. In fact, my oldest child is 56, so you're still pretty, plenty young to get married, and some people get married beyond 50, of course, and are very happy as far as that's concerned. Why? For there are eunuchs who were born from their mother's womb. I think Jesus might have been using a little sarcasm here. I don't know. He says, if you don't want to get married, you're a eunuch. Some of these guys, well, no, we're not that. You know, whatever. He may have had a little sarcasm. And there are eunuchs made eunuchs by men. They had an operation. They were castrated. The Catholic Church used to castrate young men by the hundreds and the thousands. They called them castrati. The castrati. They kept their young voices high for the Catholic choirs. Horrible. Castrate young men so they could never have a sexual experience, never have children, never have a wife, never have a family, just so the Catholic choirs would have these high male voices. The castrati. Some were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That's what apparently Paul did. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. If you can be married, it's better to do so. So that's the indication here, and Christ certainly says that kind of thing throughout the entire Bible, as I've already shown you. He describes marriage as a wonderful thing. As I've said in my family, I enjoyed having family outings. My father had a cabin, and my sister will remember this. We would go down to our cabin down at Wheeler Park, and there would be Daddy and Mother and Patty and Catherine and I, the five of us, and then Aunt Uncle Paul, who wrote the old correspondence, and Aunt Ethel would come down usually on a Sunday, and Grandma would be sitting in the sort of the smaller seat of his car in the back carrying a great big pan of extra food. 
she cooked a lot, wanted to have her part in taking care of things. So the eight of us would eat together, Sunday meal, and then we would go down to the little lake and swim and fish and carry on for a few hours. Then they'd go back, but on a long summer weekend, when my dad would get off work and stay down there Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and sometimes even on Monday, like this weekend, if you have Memorial Day, we'd be down there three days and four nights. He loved it down there. And we'd be spending time together the whole time. I remember my older son, Michael, was with us one time on an occasion like that. That was after my father died, and I had to take the lead and get the family down there and try to frighten the snakes away and get Mike and the kids to help me carry the water from the spring so we had no running water, so on. So it was a fish cabin, nothing fancy. But after that long weekend together, Mike said on the way home, he said this was the, I forget to use a kind of a childlike expression. He said, I think he said this was the goodest, I think he said this, this was the goodest time we ever had because we were all together for about three days in a row. The goodest time we ever had all day long, hiking, fishing, swimming, together, together as a family. You can build those memories, young people. You can build better memories if you work at it, many of you. You have many opportunities. It's important that you learn to do that, and God will bless you if you do it the right way, and I hope that you can. Will there be trials? Yes, there will be trials. I know some of us were talking, and one of our leading men was telling me how he himself had a hard time when his wife were first married, and they didn't have any furniture. He just had a couple of chairs or something, and they had to work and work and save and gradually build their furniture and build their family together. I know that's the way that many young couples started out in those days, and they were very happy. They didn't have everything. So when they did finally get a small house, or later on get a big house, or later get two cars or a big car, they appreciated it more. They went through the trials together. And just before they got kicked out of their apartment, the money would come through and they were able to stay. <laughs> that happened to me a few times. It was in the early days of Ambassador College and the Radio Church of God, as we called it then, where our business manager was not able to pay us because Mr. Armstrong was always buying some new radio station and spending the money, and we had to go and beg Vern Matson to get a check so we didn't get kicked out of our apartment. And we had to do without food to extent. We, we never starved, but we just didn't get to eat out very much and had to be careful. Did it hurt us? No, it did not hurt us. It made us appreciate life. Some young people who have everything kill themselves, these wealthy families and so on. The people who struggle to live, they appreciate life. And life means more. So if you struggle to build a nest egg of some money, if you work together to get a new washing machine, if you work together to get a nice refrigerator, if you work together to get a bigger house, then you're happy with it. You've conquered together. you struggled together. You've overcome together. And it strengthens your marriage if you learn to look at it in the right way. So I hope all of us can do that. Marriage is a wonderful training ground, as I've said. Marriage teaches you to give. You give to this other person. And each of you, as you marry another person, think if you're willing to do that before you marry, but think, I want to help this other human being happy. I want to fulfill their hopes and dreams as best I can. As a husband, I want to take care of my wife and give her enough change of pace and outings or trips or physical things where she can be happy and have a change of pace and have an interesting life. 
and she helps me in all kinds to fix things that I want and helps me even buy things that I may not even need. She wants me to be happy. Try to help the other person be happy. Give to them. Not what can I get from this other person, what can I give? Don't go into marriage, young people, in order to get. I want to get this. I want to get romance. I want to get sex. I want to get, you know, whatever. Think this is a beautiful young woman that I love her. I appreciate her. I will die for her, and I hope I will die with her, and she will die, and I will die. And we'll be buried together because we will live together until death does us part. And I want to take care of her until my death and support her, support her financially, support her physically and give her the things that she needs, support her emotionally to encourage her when she's down, to encourage her spiritually, to support her in every way I can. And you young women, as you come into thinking of marriage, think, how can I make this man happy? How can I make this man's life more complete? Many women think, I want to be a career woman, and I'm going to go out and work and make more than my husband, then I'll come home tired and flop and not want to cook, and so I won't ever have to do all that stuff. Well, who is, who is going to do that stuff? Frankly, in tomorrow's world, more of the women will be staying at home or helping their husband in his business. I know my parents' were friends were very happy, a whole group of them, I got to know them. Mr. Carlson, Ray Carlson, owned the largest hardware and feed store in southwest Missouri. Margaret Carlson, his wife, worked, but she worked for her husband. She ran the cash register. She helped watch over the staff in this great big store, big hardware and feed store. Betty Burns and her husband had one of the best, biggest drug stores in town. And Betty worked there and ran the cash register. If I had a business like that, who could I trust to take care of the money? My wife. Because if your wife steals from you, she's stealing from herself. You see what I mean? My checkbook is her checkbook. My car is her car. Everything I have is hers, and everything she has is mine. Your wife's not going to want to steal from you. Sure, you work together, you build a business, and you can later build a family. Think of it that way. We're a team. How can we help each other, encourage each other to build a better life together and go through the trials and tests having a companion, a loving companion, and build a family and have children, perhaps later grandchildren? Yes, we talk about the end of the world. And being old, I hope the end of the world will come soon. But God has never obliged me on that yet. <laughs> and I've been talking about that for the last 50 years or so, thinking the world will come to an end, you know, in the next 10 or 15 years or whatever. And, and God may allow the world to go on another 10 or 15 or 25 years. I don't want to shock you older people, but it could easily go on 25 more years. I don't think it would go on too much beyond that, but I'm not trying to set a date. It's just so many things are already underway. But on the other hand... There are things that are underway, and it could speed up. But in the meantime, we're not in the present distress that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There is no present distress. So as Paul said, some of you may be better not married because of the present distress. When you read about it, he was fighting lions there in Corinth and writing to the Corinthians there in Ephesus and writing it back to the Corinth about the present distress. Terrible persecution apparently was coming at that time. We don't have that. So it's probably better for the vast majority of you to think about marriage. You may have another 3 to 6 or 12 or 15 years. Build your life. If you have to go into the tribulation together, at least you have some companionship. And you've had companionship for all that time in between. 
We can't set dates. Have someone you love to share the trials with, the tests with, as well as the good times with, someone who is your companion. And I want to read something here before closing that give credit to Mr. Ames. He sent me this clipping. He knew what I was going to preach on. And this is from the Globe and Mail, which is the major newspaper, some of you know, up in Canada. Whenever I visited Canada, I read the Globe and Mail. The headline here says, as a picture of this old couple sitting here, 77 years meet Canada's longest wedded couple and some marriage tips. And so it talks about Alice and Arthur John and how they grew up together and he finally grew tired of her cooking. Alice, 96, is still active and likes to put around the kitchen of their Ross River Yukon home. But Arthur, 102, he's 102 years old, <laughs> has trouble chewing anything hard and is growing weary of the same meals prepared by the same woman for 77 years. <laughs> Married 77 years. Alice isn't insulted. They probably learned to kid together, laugh together. She just laughs it off and invites Arthur to join her on the outdoor swing to watch a passing flock of cranes. He said, that doesn't sound very exciting. He'd rather watch TV. Well, they'd rather sit together and watch a passing flock of cranes flying by. They sit silently side by side, holding matching canes. They've got their canes just like me. <laughs> After so many years, there's much not new to say. If you love someone, you sort of sit with them. You don't have to just keep a rapid-fire conversation. The Johns are Canada's longest married couple, a distinction that will be celebrated this weekend in their hometown and so on. They were married or wed in a traditional Dean First Nation arranged marriage. Did they have a Hollywood romantic courtship in some dance hall? No, it was an arranged marriage. And again, a lot of you young people, you don't like that. I know that idea. Well, no one's going to tell me who to marry. But down through times, millions of parents have guided their children in marriage at least. You don't necessarily make them. Sometimes in countries they make them. But in our country in the early days, Farmer Jones would have a son and Farmer Brown across the field, a daughter, and they'd get their kids together at family gatherings and watch. So when our kids get together, they kind of guide them in that way. They didn't have a whole lot of other people nearby, and they guided them, and probably the kids enjoyed each other. They loved each other. They liked each other as kids. They got married. No Hollywood romance. They just decided to build a life together. And so the farmers would each give the last back 60 acres of their land to the kids, and then the kids would start off with 120 acres. Those things happened. The farmer I worked for up in Canada had the same thing happen to him, up in Kansas, I mean. Their life wasn't an easy one, the couple had 11 children and so on, but they went through all kinds of diseases and trials and tests. Throughout their marriage, Arthur supported the family by running mail for the army, dog sled, by dog sled, cutting wood for steamships, prospecting and trapping fur, lynx, beaver, and other animals for fur trade. Alice supplemented their income by sewing and tanning hides. Was it ever difficult to stay married to the same man for 77 years? Question mark. Alice asks for the question to be repeated, not because she didn't hear it, but because she didn't understand the premise. She didn't realize, why would anyone ask such a question, I guess. She said, you just do it. You just do it, she says. 
It's the statement that best exemplifies the couple's secret for lasting marriages. They had no choice, and in the face of hardship, they learned to endure difficulty together. So I would say to you young people, don't wait till everything's perfect. Don't wait until you find the perfect mate. It's not going to happen. Try to find someone that is compatible, that you love, that is converted, that you could share your life with. Spend enough time with them. Get a certain amount of counsel. But don't wait until everything's perfect. Just do it. And build a life together. And build a family together. Just as God is building his family. And you will be glad. You will be happy in the end. Some few might make a mistake. But I'd rather be unhappy with the wife than unhappy all alone having no one to talk to, no one to share things with, no one to be at my hospital bed when I was dying. I would rather be married. I would rather have a mate. I would rather obey God's command to be married, to have children, to be fruitful and multiply, and have children and grandchildren at the end of my life. So if you can, if everything else works right, just do it.